Well, our passage this morning is Romans 11. We're back to the letter to the Romans, and we're making progress toward the end of Paul's letter, and we find ourselves in chapter 11, after last week's look at the Gospel of John and the resurrection of Peter by Jesus after his rising. Now, this morning, we hear of more Gospel mysteries given to us from the love and the mercy of Jesus. Young Christians, young theologians, let's start with you. See if you can hear what we mean when we use the word grace. What does grace mean? See if you can hear the way we define it, or you can come up with a way of explaining it yourself if you want. But see if you can hear what we mean when we talk about grace. And that's what Jesus has for us in this passage He has for us the love and the grace of God. This is the good news, the gospel of Christ, from the opening of the 11th chapter. I ask then, has God rejected his people by no means? For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. And God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. And I alone am left. And they seek my life now. But what is God's reply to him? I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace... But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was speaking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says... Let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Oh Lord Jesus, we are not holy. We cannot make ourselves holy ceremonially by observances. We cannot make ourselves practically holy in what we do. And we need your covering, which we just celebrated. So give it to us again with the good news, Lord Jesus. Give to us the hope and the peace that is ours by God's merciful and authoritative declaration. You are righteous and forgiven and made new in the Son. Lord, we pray this morning that you would give to us a simple sermon and simple hearing, and simple obedience, and simple joy from it. We love to create complications, obfuscations, ways to make ourselves feel as though we're really doing something, we're really measuring up, and it's all useless. And worse, it's judged. So take the worthless things away from us, And instead, give us gospel simplicity, for in it, we are relieved with joy and thanksgiving, 
And in it, we have true peace. We ask all of this in the name above every name, the name of Jesus, the born, crucified, risen, and ascended Lord. In his name, we ask for these gifts. Amen. Would you be seated? Whoever you are, you need grace. That's what Paul is saying as he opens up the 11th chapter of the letter. Whoever you are, Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter. The gift of God's salvation comes in the same way. It comes through grace. God's reaching in when you were reaching away. And whoever you are, probably the hardest thing to accept in all the world is grace. We need it. And God has it as His nature. And we don't want it. But He insists on it. And sometimes breaks through with it for us. That is chapter 11 in a nutshell. Grace means God is the lover. His love existed first. Before there was a creation to love, He did. Before there were causes to love it, He did. Grace means His love is prior. And His love moves first, not ours. His love defines this relationship, not ours. And for you young disciples and young theologians, maybe we could describe grace this way. Grace is knowing all the reasons we shouldn't be loved and being wildly loved anyway. Grace is a love that won't be told no. A love that won't be pushed away. Whoever you are, grace is what you need. Because it shrinks the flesh. And our flesh has a way of wanting to enlarge itself. By flesh we mean effort and ability and works. We'll do it for ourselves. It's this determination that I'll get there on my own and I won't need to depend on anyone including God. I won't have to give myself over to him. We want something to win God's heart with because then we have something on him. We have something over him, something to use against him. We don't want his heart served up to us unsolicited without negotiation. We don't want God taking us into the untamedness of his heart. We want some leverage over his heart. Something to manipulate his heart with. Just the way we manipulate our own hearts and the hearts of each other. Look, we we don't want it to be a costly love that is willing to pay away all of our debts to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves, to find us in our helplessness and to love us in it and out of it. What we want is for it to be a game. We want some competency in the thing. But David, of all people, King David, who struggled with the flesh as much as he struggled with the faith, David preaches against the flesh. 
in verses 9 and 10 of our section. Let their table become a snare for them and a trap, a stumbling block to trip them, a retribution, a curse. That's an interesting image from David. Turn their table into a trap. In the ancient Near East, a table wasn't always a table with legs. It was, in many cases, just a leather tarp laid down on the ground. They would eat on this big piece of leather, especially during Israel's nomadic days. So sitting down on this flap of leather finds that there's a pit dug beneath it. That's what David is saying. And the people fall through. And the table that they thought they were sitting down with God at, the table where they were sure they were pleasing God and winning His heart, was the law. It was in their performance of the law. We'll keep the law and we'll make ourselves beautiful and pleasing to you. But in the fleshly attempt of the people to dig their way into God's heart, they fall into a sinkhole that they can't climb out of. Flesh always tries to reach up to God, but it never reaches high enough. And grace is designed, it's designed to frustrate our flesh always. Whoever you are, you need grace because grace enlarges the cross. It would be terribly disheartening and upsetting if God only showed us our need but never met us in it. And that's not His nature. He shows us our need starkly in order to meet it lavishly. But initially, anyway, we resist. And that's Elijah the prophet's complaint against the people. Referenced by Paul in verse 3. Lord, they've killed your prophets. They've broken your altars. They've demolished everything. Elijah was saying, the people don't want to hear the word of saving love. Repent, and I will forgive you. I will renew your hearts and make them idle resistant. Turn to me and I'll save you and I'll keep you. I'll delight in you and you will enjoy me. But again, the flesh always gets in the way. The people didn't want to hear that word. And so they slaughtered the prophets. And they didn't want God's sacrifices for sins either. To have another life spilled out and drained for my misused, misspent life for all of my forbidden worship, for loving all the wrong things. I don't want to sacrifice for that. I'd rather work it off because then my sin isn't so bad and I don't need God nearly as much, but then again, his love isn't nearly as deep then either. So the Lord insists on his word of saving love. And he sends Jesus the word in flesh to speak it more loudly than it had ever been spoken before. It's the only loving word there is, the only word he can speak. And when the people smash his altars and ruin his sacrifices and turn their backs on the means that he's given for their forgiveness, he plants a cross on the earth and he nails his own son to it for all of our withheld love and all of our half-hearted love, and all of our mechanically heartless 
love toward Him. Because our works never reach high enough. His grace always reaches all the way down. Whoever you are, you need grace. Because grace resurrects the dead. No amount of self-effort will bring you to resurrection. No matter how hard you try, you can never raise yourself. And it truly takes grace to reach in and pour life into a dead thing and to pull love back out of that thing. So Paul tells us the story of his own resurrection in verse 1. Has God rejected his people? Has God written off the Jews whom he called to himself, the ones with whom he first made his covenant? Has he forgotten them? By no means. Of course not, Paul says. Because I'm a Jew. I'm an Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham. I'm a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I was as Jewish as you could be, and my Jewishness was impressive. And all my Jewishness meant nothing because it didn't have Jesus in it. The point of all of our Jewishness is to point us to Jesus. And then one day, the Jesus I hated, I hated him. And the Jesus I was convinced was a fraud. And this Jesus, who was building his kingdom out of losers, not super achievers like me. This, this Jesus, who said that all of our Righteous strivings and pompous pieties are nothing. They're like running on a wheel and getting nowhere. That Jesus who offended me met me on the road and showed me how I had offended him even more. He appeared on the road to me in his resurrection glory with armfuls of grace. And he took me out of my own hardness, the hardness I was filling my heart with, He snatched me out of it and he took me for himself. Just listen to the way Paul tells his story from his letter to Timothy. Christ Jesus our Lord has judged me faithful, meaning Jesus has made me faithful. He has appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor. I was his insolent opponent, Paul says. But I received Mercy, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost, I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Grace raised me, Paul is saying. Grace resurrected me from the dead. And he gives us one more glimpse of resurrection in this passage. It's down in Elijah's complaint again In verse 3, I am alone, Lord. All the other prophets are dead. 
There's nobody else here to love you and to hear you and to worship you and follow you. It's me. I'm the only one left. But what is God's answer to him? What is his reply? Paul asks in verse 4. I've kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal, who do not serve idols. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. A remnant. There has always been a group of people God has reserved for himself to share his goodness and his love, to fear nothing and simply enjoy him. Now, that word remnant doesn't necessarily mean small, which is the way we want to take it. That's not what it means. It has nothing to do with quantity, great or small. It doesn't matter. In fact, the way that word remnant is used twice in Isaiah chapter 44 means that part of a block of wood that is not used to make an idol. That part that was not used to serve and love an idol. The remnant are those that God has graciously taken for himself, raised out of their stupor, opened their eyes from their blindness, unplugged their ears from their deafness, and he has stopped their stumbling along, clutching their lives to themselves and their worthless, lifeless gods. Whoever you are, you need grace to shrink the flesh and enlarge the cross and raise you from the dead. Passover was last week. We missed it, of course, because we were celebrating the fulfillment of Passover in Christ. Blood on the doorposts is now replaced by blood on a cross. And people huddled in houses while the death angel glides silently overhead is replaced by people who are filled with the poured out spirit of Jesus and coming out of their tombs noisily. We, we know of the Passover in concept, but it's probably distant to most of us in practice. So here's a Passover practice that you may not be aware of. During the Passover, there are thousands of Jews who sell their homes temporarily for the duration of the holiday. In the story of the Exodus, the Israelites were freed from slavery and rushed out of Egypt, the land of their captivity, so quickly that their bread didn't even have time to rise. It looked more like a saltine, if you've never seen it. So to commemorate this rush in following the Lord out of imprisonment, Jewish law states that during the Passover, no bread, no grains, no products with yeast in them can be eaten or even remain in your residence. Nothing, not even crumbs. So the months leading up to the Passover turn into a frenzied cleaning if not an all-out blitzkrieg to seek and destroy fugitive breadcrumbs wherever they may be hiding, couch cushions, book pages, baby cribs, radiators, pant cuffs, they all have to be swept clean. 
or to keep from going to all that trouble, to keep from having to purge the house, you could just sell it for a time. You could just sell it for the duration of the eight days that comprise the holiday. Instead of going to all the trouble of having our homes swept clean, we could just pass the uncleanness off to someone else. We could hand the impurity over to someone else to own it for just a bit. And then in the meantime, we could go to a luxury resort or set off on a cruise. Now look, this isn't meant to be a mocking of Jewish culture. It's just an illustration. Because, while the passage speaks directly to and of Jews, it doesn't speak only to and of Jews. It speaks to Gentiles too. And here's the point. Whoever you are, for as long as you can find loopholes, you don't need a Savior. Whoever you are, For as long as you can find a way of escape, you don't need a Savior. Whoever you are, for as long as you can make a way out of your impurity and your uncleanness and your guilt, you do not need a Savior. But grace closes all the loopholes and turns them into dead ends. And grace ensures that we do need a Savior and grace sends us the Savior we need, a Savior who wears our flesh, a Savior who suffers our cross, a Savior who bursts our tombs, all to show us that our strength is weakness that needs help. It needs the help of God. It needs grace. Grace is the song of the needy. And grace is the insult of the strong. And grace is the door that invites those who think they're strong to walk through and find that they're weak. And the gospel is, God is still reaching out in grace in ways we may not expect to people we fear for and ache for and long for and hope for. So, to take Paul's own question, is God still at work saving the Jews? Yes, by grace. Is God still at work saving Muslims? Yes, by grace. Is God saving Buddhists and Hindus? Yes, by grace. And what about consumers who don't need God because they can buy their pain away? Is He at work among them? Yes, by grace. And what about hard Westerners who think that Jesus is just a very bad fiction and Christianity is a cruel joke? Is he saving them? Is he reaching in and taking their hardness and breaking it up and lifting them out of their stupor and blindness and deafness? Yes, by grace, not by arguments or reason or aptitudes or style or likability or influence or money or power or status or success. Not by any of those things. And when the church postures itself with those things, isn't it just using another bad version of works? 
isn't that still the same problem? Just baptized works. And Paul says, that's not what God uses in verse 6. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Not any kind. No matter how you want to make them look, it is not on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. Jesus shows up uncalled and unwanted and unknown. Jesus shows up uninvited in the surprising weakness of a virgin birth. In the even more surprising weakness of a cross. In the even more surprising weakness of a death-proof body. And in the even stranger weakness of His Spirit poured out into our hearts that continually whispers to us, it's all true. And He calls our names and He cuts through the noise and He convinces us that Jesus is just what we need. So how should I pray for our city? That God would make His common grace obvious. His common grace is the ways that he loves all of his creation, all of his creatures. There are ways God gives his love to all of us. In the rain that falls and waters the earth and the sun that bakes life into us and warms us. In a good economy where there are jobs for our neighbors. Where there's business to be had. In civic justice and safety where we don't have to fear for ourselves and for each other. We should pray that God's common grace to our city would be so obvious that it would stir deep questions about his further grace, his special grace, the grace of salvation through Jesus the Son. How should we pray for our neighbors and our loved ones who have not been claimed by Jesus? We should pray that he would make them need his grace. And we should pray that then he would put his servants in their way to announce his grace. And we should pray that by that time he will have made their hearts so hungry for his grace that they would tremble and creak out. This is what I've always looked for and wanted, but I didn't know that Jesus had it in himself. I didn't know Jesus had it to give. And how should we pray for ourselves? We should pray that we would need his grace more every day. And that we would come to hate our own works. Use strong words. Don't chicken out. If you're going to pray, then do the work and pray. And ask him to make us hate our own works. We have to repent of our righteousness. We can never reach high enough. And he always reaches all the way down. And pray that we would be so filled with his grace. We would have to tell others about it. And that believing grace. We would become more shockingly gracious ourselves. That his gracious nature would splash out on us. And stain us with the gospel. And all that we say and all that we do. In the ways that we move, in the ways that we build our lives, in all that we are. How should we pray for the glory of God? That he would be known as nothing but gracious. 
that the myths and the speculations of who God are, which are so popular in our culture, would be hollow and frustrating and empty to the people who spout them and throw them around. Dissatisfying. But the sturdiness of the gospel through the proclamation of grace would be the answer to the questions people didn't even know they had. But really what Paul is telling us in the chapter is, as Christians we don't have any reason to complain or accuse. And the reason those behaviors don't fit with us is the gracious God has given to us something much more strong. And that is prayer. Stop fretting, stop worrying, and pray. Pray for grace. If you're a skeptic with us this morning, we love it when you visit with us. We're we're thrilled to have friends and neighbors who don't believe what we believe come and sit in with us from week to week. And the question for you from the passage is, are you in a stupor? Are you blind and deaf to your need of Jesus? Are you hardened to Jesus? And is all that just coming to light for you now? And if so, does it scare you? And if it does scare you, there is good news for you, believe it or not. Call out to Jesus and say to him, Jesus, give me your grace. Give me this love that won't be told no, that won't be pushed away. And if you don't know how to call out to him, come find me and I'll help you. But remember, Jesus loves to give his grace. You probably know the story or something of it, of John Newton, the hymn writer of Amazing Grace. When Newton was 11, he decided to drop out of school and become a sailor. He decided to take up the rough life of living as a seaman. And then later, eventually, he became a slaver. He captured people in West Africa, men, women, children. He sold them as slaves all over the British colonies, turning profit by wrecking lives. And in the middle of a fierce storm at sea, Newton thought he was going to die And he never saw his sins more clearly than he did in the middle of that storm. He was terrified for his soul. And the experience led him to a true conversion. He left the slave trade, called it evil. And at the age of 39, he became a pastor in the Church of England. He was active in ministry until he died at the age of 82. And through it all, he really believed what he wrote in his hymn, that God's grace was amazing to reach all the way down to save a wretch like he was. And shortly, just before he died, Newton was in the pulpit, old, not at the height of his abilities and powers, much slower than he was when he first started. But he stood in front of his congregation and he said, My memory is nearly all gone. But I remember two things. That I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. And that's grace. Those two things held together. If you have only one, you don't have grace any longer. 
Those two things have to be kept together at all times. I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. And that's what makes grace amazing. Whoever you are. Whoever you are. Amen. Lord Jesus, take everything else away from us and leave us only these two things, these two great truths, these two great treasures. That we are great sinners and Christ is a great Savior. I look forward to the day I can stand in the new heavens and the new earth and say those two things before the King to feel the reality of all my great and terrible sin, but then to see Jesus, the beautiful Savior, laugh and kiss it all away and to say that he has won and my sin has not. And I've loved growing in the awareness, in the experience of those things what little I've had of them in this life, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a much greater Savior. But fill our church with this confession and give us these treasures and we will be rich. And forgive us one local body among your larger universal church. Forgive us for the times that we don't live by your grace. We live by our works instead. And prune that away. Change us out of that as well. We pray, Lord Jesus, for a greater depth of your unmerited favor and love and the fruit and effect that comes from it that we can truly look at ourselves as a body and say, Jesus the Lord has had his way with us and is having his way with us. That's what we want. Don't stop with us until you've accomplished it. And if you will, as always, we will sing your praise for it and not our own. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. We ask all of this.